You're listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast. The OPP is brought to you by Natural Stacks, makers of 100% natural and open source supplements designed to help you live optimal. For more information on how to build optimal mental and physical performance into your life, go to naturalstacks.com. I wanted to talk just really briefly about one of my most favorite products from Natural Stacks, which is the Antarctic Krill Oil. All of us know already that we should be taking fish oil for our joint health, for our brain, and also for our own ability to reduce inflammation in our body. And the cool thing about the Antarctic Krill Oil from Natural Stacks is that it doesn't have that funky fish flavor. It doesn't have a smell, it doesn't stink, and you also don't burp it up, which is really common with other uh, fish oils out on the market. And if you go to naturalstacks.com, you can actually read some reviews where people are talking about, um, yeah, best krill oil out there, no aftertaste, no smell, really helps with my back pain and overall health. And you know it's sourced from quality. Natural Stacks products are rock solid. It's true. We we test every single batch and we post the results of each of the batch on the website. So if you're interested to see what's actually in your supplements that you're spending money to take, you'll find uh, exactly all the details that you'll need to know about the products that you're buying. As always, if you go to naturalstacks.com and you use the promo code MAC15, M-A-C-15, you get 15% off your first online purchase. So if you want to go and stock up and really hit it hard, uh, go ahead, jump in there, use the code MAC15 at checkout, and it's 15% off. This is a product that I use every single day, that my family uses every day, um, because of its overall general health benefits. So go to naturalstocks.com and take me up on this fly offer. For those of you that may not already know, we're having a spring sale. So go ahead to naturalstocks.com and stack up, stack up, see what I did there, on three new products that we're carrying. Uh, They're pretty cool, actually. For those of you who take Siltep on a regular basis, we're introducing a new Siltep to-go pack, also a Magtech drink mix. In addition to that, we've also got a brain food set. Uh, For those of you who have been taking the uh, the acetylcholine brain food, serotonin brain food, dopamine brain food, or the GABA brain food, or the four, the four guys that are in the uh, brain nutrients box set, um, there's special offers. So go to naturalstacks.com and stack up while the time is right. And we want to hear what your thoughts are as always please give us reviews send us emails we we're human beings at natural stacks we're real actual people trying to provide you with the best possible vitamins and supplements that you can actually take into your body to make you more optimal we went there yep i took it there we went to microdosing This week's episode, I sit down with Paul Austin and we have a conversation about microdosing using sub-perceptual doses of psychedelics to perform at a higher level. And we cover psilocybin and LSD and MDMA. We talk about the different applications of using microdoses, not only to perform at a higher level and to think more creatively, but also to reduce anxiety and depression. I think that we're gonna look back 10 or 20 years from now and when all of this is legal and mainstream and we're going to look back and think man what were we doing why weren't we doing this earlier this is a really wide-ranging conversation but we all get we also get very specific and narrow about which psychedelics can be used at what doses for what effect 
Um, we talk about the work that he's doing in Amsterdam, hosting retreats where people can do psychedelics and, and also explore them, their consciousness and open up and perform at a higher level. And for those of you guys who are already pushing the boundary and tinkering with your brain and your performance and your ability to, um, to be your absolute best, I think you're going to get a ton out of this episode. I want your feedback on this. Please let me know. Do you like this stuff? Is this stuff interesting? Because it's super fascinating to me. And uh, I know you're going to love this conversation. Paul Austin is a totally stand-up guy. And the work that he's doing, I think, is really, really important. Because in the world of pharmaceuticals and prescription drugs, there is an alternative. And it may just be microdosing psychedelic substances. I think you guys are really going to dig this episode. And ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Paul Austin. You're listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast, and I'm your host, Sean McCormick. It's the OPP. I'm a performance coach, a wellness entrepreneur, a blogger, a speaker, a biohacker, and it's my privilege to bring to you the leading experts in the field of performance. So let's dig right in. So we're here with Paul Austin. Paul, thanks for joining us today, man. Thanks for having me on, Sean. I was super excited to get your your message the other day and, and make this happen. I love what you're doing with this podcast, so I'm down to jam about microdosing and psychedelics and all the good stuff. Awesome. One way that I like to start each of these episodes is to ask people what they're what they're on. Uh, what do you have? What have you put in your body today? It's ten thirty Pacific Standard Time. What if what's what's inside you? What have you put in your body today? Yeah, that's actually a really good question. I'm glad you asked that. So uh, the typical thing is you know wake up in the morning and vitamin D uh, with fish oil. And then I will take rhodiola, which is an adaptogen uh, that comes from Russia. Uh, and I took a couple, I took some psilocybin mushrooms as well. Um, so a very, very sub-perceptible amount, a very low amount. And then, I mean, in terms of other drugs, coffee. So I had some caffeine. And then I've also been trying nicotine, which is a bit of a risky ploy. Um, but I got something called the Juul. And I've been also looking at that from a, just a stimulant perspective, what, what the impact of that is. So those are kind of the, and I'm fasting. You know, I haven't eaten yet as well. So it's, it's yeah, that, that's kind of what's going on right now. Nice. Uh, do you, do you have black coffee? Um, I had a little bit of milk, so maybe it's not like a hard, hard fast, but the idea is just, you know, never eat breakfast and, and, um, you know, only have like a coffee in the morning and, and then see where it goes from there. Yeah. What, uh, what, what dose of, of which psilocybin today? So, uh, it's interesting, you know, with psilocybin mushrooms being still illegal in the States, there's a, a guy who's trying to basically um, cultivate, instead of the fruiting spores of the mushrooms, he's cultivating the mycelium, which is the, the underground sort of stuff. And so, by by he sent me a sample, and so it has a really, really low density compared to the, the, the fruiting spores of psilocybin mushrooms. So, I just took two of those. Uh, little pills. I don't know the exact amount that's in them, um, unfortunately, but it's not enough to have any sort of noticeable effect. Like sometimes when I microdose, I'll take a little bit technically more than a microdose. So I'll feel a little euphoria. My sense of smell or touch will be slightly enhanced. With this, it's very kind of 
under under the radar. And and then the reason I, I'm doing that is because I'm trying to instead of microdosing as in a drug which has a noticeable impact, I'm trying to microdose as like a supplement, like a fish oil, to help facilitate neurogenesis, neuroplasticity because of the impact that microdosing has on the brain and the gut. So that's kind of the the approach right now that that I'm going for. Excellent. Ooh, we're gonna have a lot to talk about, Paul. I'm so excited. Yeah, it's gonna be a lot of fun. <laughs> um, do you know do you know what, what mushroom specifically? Uh, so it's uh, psilocybin cubensis, which is okay. the the typical you know psychoactive mushroom that most people will consume yeah. for microdosing. Yeah, cool. Uh, it's interesting. I, I have not heard of I have not heard of anybody microdosing the mycelium. You know, it's all fruited body, uh, ground up, encapsulated. And, and in in my experience, it's a point two to point or point two to point three grams for for that sort of classic sub perceptible uh, or barely perceptible sort of dose for for classic microdosing and and here in seattle i think much like uh silicon valley there's so much innovation there's so much tech there's so much uh focus it's becoming more and more common and i get lots of questions you can imagine as a float center owner and podcast host you know like there's lots of i'm sort of the go-to guy for a lot of people um, to ask these questions so it's um i'm really excited to dig in um Walk us through, if you will, your, well, first I saw that you were, I saw that you were vaping. What are you, what are you vaping? Is that the nicotine? So, so that's the nicotine. Yeah. That's the nicotine that I'm vaping. I won't vape cannabis typically during the day because, um, cannabis just, I mean, while it helps with like presence and creativity and particularly in social situations, for me, it's just something I can't do until the end of the day because I'm not as on point and focused. So I've been Maybe with the nicotine a little bit. Um, uh, it's it's kind of like a short experiment. Like I don't want to become addicted um, uh, because that's not fun. Uh, but I do just want to see the the impact and effect it has. So I've been vaping with yeah the, the jewel a little bit. Cool. Walk us through your walk us through your first psychedelic experience. I mean, uh, I'm sure that we could we could devote four podcasts to talk about the ins and outs of what was going on externally and internally. But I'd love to get a sense of your your first your first impression. Yeah, so I'll kind of give you the framework uh, of how that developed. Basically, I grew up in West Michigan, um, uh, near a little city called Grand Rapids. I went to school in a place called Holland, which is right on Lake Michigan. And West Michigan is very traditional um, in that, you know, a bunch of basically poor Dutch farmers uh, moved there in the early 20th century. And they brought with them, you know, this strong kind of sense of uh, Calvinism, Protestant, you know, Protestants, you know, this whole thing. So I grew up in a very traditional family um, where we went to church every Sunday and, you know, anything that was illegal was bad. So, you know, no drinking till 21, no rated R movies till I was 17. Uh, you know, I, I had a good friend of mine who always made fun of me because I grew up so sheltered. Uh, so I was like, all right, yeah. Uh, and then when I was 16, I smoked some weed and was like, oh, there's something to this. And then when I was 19, I was in college and had a close friend of mine who's like, yeah, I did acid and it was the best fucking experience of my life. So I'm like, uh, this sounds really cool. So um, we basically, I took acid uh, in early May. It was like 70, 75, sunny out. And the beautiful thing about West Michigan is we have these amazing sand dunes that are right on the lake. And when I'm talking about lake, it's, you know, it, it's basically like an ocean right. because Lake Michigan is so big. Um, so we basically dropped some acid. I went out to the sand dunes and the woods and hiked around there. 
and um, enjoyed the experience uh, on this beautiful early May day with four or five other people. And I just remember having all of these insights and deep, deep understanding of my, my relationship to other things. And I think this is kind of the, the quote unquote common experience that people you know, have when they take a psychedelic is the sense of interconnectedness, where we understand that we're not just these kind of individual egos that exist isolated from everything else, that in fact we share a deep connection to community, we share a deep connection to the earth, we share a deep connection to, you know, our friends and our family. And so that really helped to put, for me, put in perspective what is most valuable in my life. And up to that point in time, I lived a more, you know, traditional American life where, you know, I, I like, you know, Kind of the consumerist mindset and and the biggest paradigm shift for me when on you know after taking psychedelics for the first time was reorienting towards experiential wealth rather than financial wealth and that's why then i chose to pursue you know everything that i'm currently doing yeah the term experiential wealth is not one that i've heard before but yes absolutely totally get it uh <laughs> I realize that I'm going to struggle in this podcast because I'm going to want to share too, and I'm going to want to talk about my experiences. But, 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 um, um, well, do you want to do that? Well, I mean, what, what, what <laughs> should I play podcast hosts? Like, no, what, what, okay. No, okay. Let's, no, let's make this about you because I'm going to have lots of opportunities to talk about, to talk about my experience and my other podcast, uh, the mystic Mac podcast is devoted to, consciousness exploration, psychedelics, breathwork, floating, um, spirituality, you know, uh, spiritual awakening. So, uh, I have, I have another platform for that, but, um, what was the first, what was the conversation like with your folks when they first learned what you were doing? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So like I mentioned, I grew up in, in this traditional kind of familial structure and, you know, my mom's a social worker. My dad is an administrator at the university that I went to. Um, they're not conservative in how we understand it from an American sense. They vote liberal Democrat. Uh, my mom's a feminist, et cetera, et cetera, but very normative, very, these are the rules and we follow them. Um, and so when I was 24, so in 2014, I remember having the conversation with my mom about like, and it just kind of came out randomly, but I'm like, yeah, I do psychedelics and I've done them a lot and I will continue to do them. And of course her first reaction was, whoa you know like you're going to turn into a, a i think i think she said a wet noodle um <laughs> because of, of you know the impact that psychedelics have in your brain and so ever since that point in time and in late 2014 i hadn't started the third wave yet you know th this was still maybe eight months before i actually started the public website um but then throughout that process from the end of 2014 to now i've really seen an amazing transformation in how you know um understanding my parents are of both the work that I'm doing, but also, you know, the, the research and the science that's coming out about uh, psychedelic substance. And I think this is indicative of what's going on, you know, that wide in our culture is a lot of people uh, are misinformed about psychedelic substances. In fact, the biggest issue around psychedelics is a lack of literacy. Uh, most people just don't, you know, they're not educated around them. So I've seen this as I've engaged with my parents about this topic, uh, they are starting to reach out to me about things like, you know, my dad mentioned that someone that he knows has been struggling with depression and was wondering if I had any research to share about the efficacy of, of psychedelics and treating depression. Uh, my mom told me that she recently met with her church group and that they asked what I was up to. 
you know, what I was doing. Uh, and I, and she told them that I run this website about microdosing and do coaching and consulting for people who are interested in microdosing LSD. And then went on to tell them how there's all this research coming out about how it treats PTSD and depression and addiction, and et cetera, et cetera. And so I think this speaks to the necessity of, of being honest and open and authentic about, for example, our own psychedelic experiences, because, you know, the biggest issue that we still deal with as a culture is, is stigma around psychedelic substances because there are still you know so many people who although they've had really transformative impactful experiences they won't speak publicly about it because they're afraid of losing their job or they're afraid of losing their family or they're afraid of losing friends or whatever it might be um and i've been fortunate enough to to not have to worry about those things because i i'm very independent i had my own business before i started the third wave so i like to speak my truth and i like to do it in a way that i think is is, is, is the right way so um, that has then, you know, catalyzed this incredible shift in my family in terms of their own, you know, kind of orientation towards psychedelic acceptances. Yeah, I mean, it, we 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 need more people to step out of the psychedelic closet and have open adult conversations because the deck the deck is stacked against us. There's the the demonization of of you know cannabis for one has worked it's been a like dare dare has worked <laughs> unfortunately and that's why people uh from the baby boomer generation think of cannabis as uh the same way that they think of heroin and um and it's obviously misinformed and toxic and and you and i are are in agreement that it is going to have uh it's going to continue to have stifling effects for our culture to grow and for our uh for our for our leaders to lead in a more embodied way to lead in a more um conscious more supportive more interconnected way um so uh kudos to you for for not only stepping out but stepping out and beating a drum and rallying people and saying, "Hey, let's all step out. Let's all talk about this. Let's let's rally for this thing." And um, it's it's really really encouraging. And I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about uh, let's talk a little bit about the different substances because our listeners uh, are tinkerers and experimenters and you know i don't know how much you know about the different product lines that we have we have three different micro uh microdosing products no we don't <laughs> that'd be tight, that'd be so tight. <laughs> no we don't we have three we have three mushroom pro products um and uh everybody that's listening to this knows the knows how effective um supplementation is in their life so let's talk a little bit about the differences in 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 the way that these substances can be used in a microdosing format. So like what, what's the difference between microdosing LSD and microdosing psilocybin? Yeah. I mean, I would say just, just for the sake of argument, they're, they're by and large the same because they have by and large the same impact uh, on the brain. I think there are slight differences um, between LSD and psilocybin and kind of the way that I like to boil it down to for, for people to understand is LSD is much more head focused and psilocybin is much more heart focused. So in other words, LSD helps a lot more with cognitive enhancement and improvement, although psilocybin also helps with that. And psilocybin seems to be more oriented towards emotional development and emotional maturity in terms of, you know, really feeling into situations and developing that intuition that, that is really important. So um, I think that has always been the, the main difference that I've noticed in, in, in utilizing these substances. Um, LSD is also, it's a semi-synthetic 
whereas psilocybin is, uh, you know, it's, it's a plant, it's a plant medicine. So for that reason, LSD also comes with uh, slightly more risk. Uh, it's longer lasting. LSD lasts 12 hours, whereas psilocybin is just six hours. So for people, for example, who want a microdose but struggle with insomnia, uh, LSD is not a good option because LSD is much more dopaminergenic uh, than psilocybin. In other words, it's it's more active in the dopamine system, um, which is tied to tied to energy. Uh, and so I think that's why LSD has become so you know kind of this this popular thing in Silicon Valley because a lot of people are microdosed for enhanced productivity and creativity. And in, in essence, they're microdosing to help with external projects, external creative projects because LSD helps with that extroversion process. Uh, whereas we're not seeing near as many stories about psilocybin because uh, those who are microdosing with psilocybin, I think are doing it more from an emotional development and kind of mental health perspective. Yeah, I totally see that. And, I, and I, I've come to understand that as well in my own experience and also in the people that I, that I speak to. On that note, I've, I've heard a couple of times recently um, that microdosing as a, as a trend, as a, as a movement, as a supplementation, method uh, that in some way microdosing LSD let's just use Silicon Valley as, as an example like that so that's that microdosing LSD may in fact be contributing to um, an imbalance in sort of work life um, um, is it is it making us work too hard it, are, are we are we using the substance to you know, advance the the Western war machine and work overwork and and undersleep and neglect our families. Like I've, I I think it's I think it's certainly worthwhile talking about. And and I wonder if you've if you've seen that and what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, no. So in other words, what role does microdosing play in this kind of cultural burnout that we seem to be experiencing? So a lot of research shows that although you know, for example, salaries have stagnated since whatever the eighties or the nineties, people are working now more than ever because you know our quote-unquote capitalist overlords are, are just demanding so much from us um, and although i think that that is a slightly cynical angle i think there is a certain element of truth to that in that you know psychedelics as they are are non-specific amplifiers meaning that they don't have inherently any sort of good or bad qualities that, that oftentimes psychedelics act as this um facilitator towards what's going on at, at culture at large so if you have a culture that particularly i think this is true in the united states overemphasizes work and productivity in other words if i can microdose and then i can get done in eight hours what used to take me 16 hours then what if i work 12 hour days i can get done a whole day whatever you know that kind of mentality i think ultimately is unhealthy which is why you know what we're trying to do with the third wave with a lot of the, the public speaking that we've done with a lot of the articles that we produce is kind of reframe how we approach work in the first place. In other words, I think as a culture, we need to become more comfortable with not working. Uh, I think uh, in, in many ways, you know, our culture basically fills uh, the, these these holes that we have uh, from, from childhood neglect or trauma or whatever it might be with work. We overwork and we overwork and we overwork. And with things like AI and automation that are starting to develop, in other words, a lot of the rote tasks that we previously had to do won't be necessary anymore. It's going to be up to thought leaders and people who are uh, continuing to develop this conversation to emphasize the importance of self-care and personal time. In other words, how do we utilize microdosing, which looks to initiate flow states, which is an interesting concept in itself, 
to potentially do creative work, what used to take us eight hours to do it in four hours, which means then we can go hang out with friends more often. We can go travel more. We can go, um, you know, go, go out to meals, cook, create, do art, whatever it might be. I think, I think the best use of microdosing was, is, is within that paradigm. In other words, to pursue creative work, to be more effective at focusing on that creative work and, and quote unquote, getting it done. And then to use the remainder of our time to really enjoy the sense of, of, of being alive. And um, so, so yeah, that, that, that's a risk, like the sense of, of, of burnout. And I think it's why, partly why it's become so popular in Silicon Valley is because you have a lot of people who are in front of their computers all day or isolated who are really not taking good care of themselves. And to compensate for that, they're microdosing because of its euphoric effects um, and its antidepressant effects. Um, and I, I do think that's unhealthy. I, I think ultimately we, we do need to have that conversation about um, how do we utilize microdosing as a tool to help us mature as a culture, which I think part of that maturation process is to let go of these kind of Protestant work ethic norms and to really actually like immerse ourselves in, in, in the beauty of everything that is life, not just in, you know, being more productive, so to say. Yeah, well, and, and your role at the third wave and your role as a coach is to help people navigate that, right? You know, like, right? <laughs> are you are you microdosing uh, five days a week and you know working until eight o'clock at night, neglecting your kids? Like, eh, you should look at that. You know, uh, right? I, I, before we go any further, I think the elephant in the room is the legality, and uh, you're probably sick of talking about it, but. I think that for people who are uninitiated, who have either never taken a sub psychedelic or they, you know, secretly smoke weed and they think that, uh, they think they're the only one, you know, uh, there's the, there's the legal aspect of it. And so I'd love to, to delve into how you handle that and what, what sort of implications the legality comes into with the work that you do. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So I think upfront, nothing's happened so far. And knock on wood, um, I hope that continues because really all we're doing is we're, we're providing education and information um, about these substances so people can make rational, empirical uh, based decisions on what they want to put in their own bodies. Um, so when it comes to legality, uh, obviously all of these uh, substances are Schedule One substances in the United States specifically. So one way, of course, to get around that legality is to go to Mexico or Peru or Brazil or Amsterdam. Um, in fact, we're we're doing a retreat in Amsterdam in a couple weeks with, with psilocybin truffles because they're legal there. You can purchase them in a smart shop. Um, so yeah, so so to keep on the right side of the law, all we do is provide education and information. Uh, we don't explicitly provide any sort of substance. So for example, if we have someone who wants to come work with us as a client, you know, they it's up to them to, to source the substance themselves. Now we do provide like I will I I do provide like nuance nuanced understanding of the legality around these substances. So one thing to know is that LSD, regular LSD, is illegal everywhere, pretty much. Um, it's not possible to acquire really regular LSD without without breaking the law. Um, however, there's nuance within that. There's a substance called 1P LSD, um, which is made in labs in Canada, and a lot of people will order it on the regular web, not the dark web, the regular web. They'll pay with crypto. And they'll get it shipped to their uh, to their home, whether in Canada or the, United, or the United States. Another legal loophole that a lot of people aren't aware of is it's, it's legal to purchase psilocybin spores. So you can actually purchase the spores of psilocybin mushrooms in every state except 
California, Georgia, and Idaho. Uh, but of course, it's illegal to grow them. But this is why we have laws in place in the United States to protect people from improper search and seizure. Um, so a lot of people are doing that, where they're legally purchasing the spores, and then they're choosing to grow them in their own house for medicinal or peak performance use. Uh, so that's kind of how we deal with the, the legal aspects. Um, you know, my my hope is that with the work that we're doing around advocacy, uh, with a lot of the larger conversations that are going on around drug policy in terms of, you know, like, Norway, for example, just decriminalized all drugs. Uh, Oregon, yeah, Oregon just decriminalized all drugs, uh, meaning that if you have a drug, it goes from a felony to a misdemeanor. Uh, Denver right now is trying to pass a measure to decriminalize psilocybin mushrooms, which I'm really hoping passes because if it does, I'll probably move there. Um, so these are there are all these other narratives going on that I think we're on the right side of history. And that as long as we keep pushing forward, that the laws will continue to change and we'll find ourselves with more and more freedom to actively explore our consciousness the way that we want to. Yeah. We should be able to explore our consciousness, right? I think a lot, I think about the Graham Hancock uh, conversation about like consciousness sovereignty, like <laughs> telling me that I can't explore my consciousness through whatever means. Uh, uh, is inhumane um um well it's a human right the, the sense of exploring yeah. our consciousness i think is a human right and and this is this is where we get to these normative normative rules that we have around what drugs are okay and what drugs aren't so obviously like nicotine is an okay drug tobacco even though it's linked well tobacco specifically is linked to lung cancer and all these other issues alcohol is a normative drug um but of course, there are so many fucking issues that come with, with alcohol. Uh, now, I drink wine and beer, and I have the occasional, like, mezcal and whatnot. At the same time, like, um, the, the state should not be able to sanction which altered states were able to engage with and which ones were not able to engage with. Um, and we're seeing this play out in the opiate crisis right now, where these legal drugs, opiates, are now creating this massive fucking health crisis because... You know, doctors were incentivized by for-profit pharmaceutical companies to over-prescribe them, which is just a fucked-up situation and scenario itself. So, yeah. these these whole this whole sense of what's okay and what's not, particularly from a legal perspective, I think a lot of people are just starting to shift their mindset on it because they realize that they've been lied to, manipulated for a long time about these things. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard recently that. Going back to the 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 mindset of uh, of the the hard charging, hard working, um, Silicon Valley person uh, in my practice and in my world, I have seen uh, Adderall um, have have really tricky effects for people, especially uh, in long term use. And I heard recently that that microdosing may be a good way to step off of Adderall. Um, have you heard anything about that? Do you have any experience with that? Yeah, so I think then, then this is when we start to talk about microdosing as like a new tropic, right? We start to look at microdosing, particularly from a cognitive enhancement perspective, and, and then we, we compare microdosing to other you know, cognitive enhancers. So kind of the most common ones that we know of are caffeine, nicotine, uh, modafinil, is another one. Adderall is obviously one. Um, and all of these substances, all of these nootropics, uh, Adderall, uh, you know, whatever they are, they help with uh, convergent thinking. 
which is this process of you have a bunch of tasks that need to get done. You need to focus on getting those tasks done. Um, they're not necessarily creative in nature. They're just things that need to happen. And so we take drugs to facilitate that process, certain types of drugs. Um, whereas with microdosing, uh, microdosing seems to help with this divergent thinking process, this, this creativity process. And so a lot of people are noticing that the, the underlying issue of why they can't focus, for example, it, 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 it's partly because they're not able to engage and be, you know, like, interested in the work that they're doing. And so I think with something like microdosing, I think that also helps to facilitate that engagement process. It helps to make people more externally engaged in the work that they're doing because it helps them to initiate flow states. So I know of numerous stories of people who are transitioning off of Adderall and onto microdoses of LSD because unlike Adderall, microdoses are not addictive. Uh, anyone who's been on Adderall before and has tried to wean off it can probably speak to the, the, the fucking shit show that they go through when, when trying to make that happen. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think that is why microdosing is just a much better nootropic in general um, because people will microdose consistently and then if they want to stop, they stop. And there's no withdrawals. There's no sort of like, oh, I need, I have this craving. It's just, you're done. Uh, and so I think it's a much healthier and more sustainable alternative than than, than Adderall. And in fact, there was just a documentary that was published on Netflix about this exact topic. Um, how I forget the name of the documentary because I haven't watched it yet, but I know Jim Fadman, who has kind of heard a lot of this microdosing craze, was in it. And basically at the end of the documentary, they, they, they kind of profile all these issues that go on with you know Adderall and these performance enhancement ADHD medications. And their recommendation at the end is to transition to microdosing LSD which I agree with wholeheartedly um, because like I said, it's a, it's a, it's a more sustainable alternative. Yeah. I mean, do you have any experience with, with, with Adderall or, you know, those just with clients? Yeah. Just with clients and friends. Um, I, I myself uh, have never, I mean, I've, I've, I went through when I was building my businesses, uh, f I was using ProVigil, Modafinil, um, never, I've, I've tried Adderall a couple of times, but, but not with me personally, it's with clients that I work with, you know, hard charging, hardworking, successful people that take it for, uh, as a nootropic to get an edge or they've been prescribed it and they just abuse it. Uh, and then they get themselves stuck and then they can't think critically without it. And they stop for a day or two and they're depressed and anxious and downtrodden. And then they're, that only deepens, deepens their connection to it and they need it and, and they go back to it and they need higher doses and more frequent use. And so I think, you know, for, for those stimulants, for those nootropics and for those prescribed uh, drugs that are, that are helping people perform at a high level, I think that there, that would be, I think it really, a really beneficial approach to to using uh, and microdosing various substances uh, because it, it's it's there's something there but you don't you don't really see it you kind of you kind of feel it uh, and then you just get your work done and you go for it and it and it and it moves um, in a more fluid way and then you uh, in in, in the, my experience is that uh, it really does help people transition uh, off of it. Can you give us uh, can you give us an idea? Give us a story. Tell us an anecdote of somebody that you've worked with uh, who's microdosed for a purpose with your 
coaching and help and assistance that has seen uh, that has seen a, a cool result? Do you have like an anecdote story for us? Yeah, so I mean, a lot of the, the the work that we've done so far, like we've done, I've done a lot of like initial calls, so to say, like consulting calls, and this, this um, but they've been more about like getting people set up and making sure they have the right information and proper information. Uh, I I took a step back on doing the ongoing coaching until we had a more rigorous program um, to bring people through. So we've just finished the development of that, and we're actually rolling out, um, you know, the, the kind of like high-end, not high-end, but just, you know, long-form coaching process at the moment where microdosing is part of a larger program for peak performance. So in, in, in terms of like a clear anecdote, um, you know, we have plenty from our microdosing course uh, that we put together. And basically I put together the microdosing course because I was getting all these questions and I thought, well, why not just create an online course where everyone can access and get all this information. So we have quite a few anecdotes from there of people who are starting to microdose through the course but in terms of my own like personal one-on-one work, it's it's I've I've limited it the past six months uh, to focus on developing certain like things within the business, and it's only now that we're starting to do like outreach again to bring in people who want to work with us in a one-on-one way. So like I, try, I don't have any like strong anecdotes like off the top of my head that I could that I could uh, give only because we we've kind of limited the, the number of people that we've been working with um, over the past six months. What was it? What was it like? Uh, how did your life change after that Rolling Stone article? Yeah, I mean, so I mean, the article that you're talking about. I'll just provide some context so that you know the listeners have like an idea. It was about some of the coaching and consulting that that, that I've done with the microdosing. I think the the headline of it was "Meet the World's First Online LSD Microdosing Coach." So any any title that has world's first um it's kind of like a funny little funny little thing so basically from that process just like we had gotten a little bit of media before that so we were briefly mentioned in the new york times uh, the economist you know a few other life hacker um, a few other things but then with that rolling stone kind of profile piece that's when you know a lot of the the, the larger media started to happen so i, I you know there were a couple speaking gigs uh, Business Insider wrote up something about us, WebMD, and now we have a whole slew of media coming out, Wired, Vox, Now This, Forbes, um, that are also doing more things. So a lot of it has been has been media-driven. A lot of it has been you know public-facing. And of course, just generally then, the continued increase in interest and awareness of what we're doing at the third way. Because I think that's the larger narrative that I'm really focused on and, and interested in is, is, you know, like, what role does microdosing play in helping people to adopt a higher level of psychedelic literacy? Uh, in other words, you know, microdosing as a topic is getting a lot of people to engage with psychedelics who maybe previously did not engage with it. And so that's that's kind of the big question that I'm interested in exploring is how do we continue to amplify this message so that we can, in essence, change the cultural conversation around psychedelics where the, they're not this drug that people do who want to opt out of society but in fact it's a substance that we have individuals use who want to transform themselves so then from that process and transforming themselves they also transform the society in which we live Uh, and we were talking about this earlier on the call you know you know my clear focus then is is this relationship between microdosing and peak performance and not only in the kind of like quantitative measurements of uh, you know, better fitness, more time spent in flow, um, you know, maybe a better meditation practice, but also kind of the, the intangibles of, 
leadership and presence, authenticity, openness, honesty, integrity. I think psychedelics also pre pre present this, this tremendous opportunity for us to mature as a culture and society where we go from this really sort of short-term profit-focused mindset to this long-term sustainability eco-focused mindset because obviously the biggest issue that we're dealing with as a culture and society right now is, is ecocide, uh, which is basically uh, killing the, the environment. And I think that, that for me is where microdosing is, is really interesting. Yeah, as you as you talk about the distinction between uh, it just brings up, you know, the Timothy Leary quote like tune in, drop out. And this is not that. This is not tune in, drop out, detach yourself from from a society that you feel already out of place in. This is this is lean forward. This is this is find find flow, find uh, integration with the people that you live with and the people that you work with and the projects that you're that you're engaging in and I think that that is that is such a, a stark deviation from the way that sort of classical psychedelics and it, and it gets to the name the third wave right, uh, right. Uh, the this is not this is not about uh, you know tie-dye t-shirts and string cheese incident this is about um, <laughs> Straight cheese incident. If you're listening, I love you. Uh, this is not about that. This is about this is about leaning into your life. This is about higher performance and and more conscious and embodied performance. And I and I think that has it has it been an uphill battle to make that distinction for people. Uh, well, I think this gets into like the importance of language and the importance of of uh, I, I came upon this word schema the other day in a book, which is like basically high-end concepts that people can really pick up on. So the, the way that we phrase it is like rebranding psychedelics. Uh, and in essence, that's really what we're trying to do. I mean, if you if you go and you look at our website, The Third Wave, it's very professional in how it's done. If you were to go to it and you didn't know what the topic was about, you wouldn't think it was necessarily about, about psychedelics because of the way that we uh, present information, the way you know the whole user interface works. Uh, and, and obviously, microdosing is a part of that, but also high doses can be a part of that as well. Um, because that, that has been the main kind of cultural misunderstanding of, of psychedelics is people perceive them as being something that, that the other do. Uh, when in fact, I think psychedelics really are about, you know, having the courage to pursue what's most meaningful to you. And, th and this, is, this is why I've been, you know, so adamant about them is because I think a lot of people are, are living in authentic lives. They're living lives where they're not necessarily in alignment with who they are and, and, and what they want to pursue. Um, and I think more and more people have this kind of deep yearning desire to pursue work that's meaningful for them. And I think that is one of the, the opportunities that, you know, intentional, responsible, structured psychedelic use presents is being able to cultivate this sense of deep self-insight and self-reflection to then orient yourself on a path that, uh, brings meaning and purpose in the long in the long term. Uh, so that, that that for me is is you know one of the interesting parts of, of microdosing and psychedelics, uh, and it's it's something that you know I've I've lived and embodied myself, which I think is why people are, you know when I go up on stage and like I talk about microdosing at tech conferences and shit, like I mean a lot of those people have never done psychedelics. Uh, but if I get up on stage and I say, you know, something that I'll often do is I'll be like, Hey, I microdosed, like I'm on LSD right now and I'm going to give this talk. <laughs> and so all of a sudden then you present people with this opportunity to, okay, do I believe all the bullshit that I've heard all the, or do I actually like 
remain present and engage with this individual who just told me he was on LSD and he just gave like a pretty decent presentation about <laughs> microdosing. And so this is the way that we change minds, right? This is the way that we engage with people to, 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 to actually change the conversation is you speak to them on an emotional heart-driven level. And so while it's certainly been, you know, enough of a battle, um, there's obviously enough cultural momentum going on around this that people like you, you know, when you ask me to get a podcast like this, or generally some of the media that we've gotten or the conferences that I've been invited to, more and more people are willing to stick out their neck for this because they realize that it's a, an important topic and a topic that's only going to become increasingly relevant as we deal with a lot of these, you know, mental health issues and ecological issues and other issues that psychedelics seem to help, you know, heal and, and help us to process and deal with. Who do you who do you see as as benefiting the most from microdosing? Yeah, that's a I mean, it's a comparative question. So, well, let's break this down into like who's microdosing, right? And so, what groups of people are microdosing? I think the first group of people who are microdosing are those you know the, the typical people that we read about in a lot of the articles. It's it's people like me. People who are interested in peak performance, people who are listening to the show, uh, they're interested in flow states, they're interested in higher levels of creativity, they're interested in self-actualization, they're interested in you know pursuing work that's meaningful and, and, and whatnot for them. And I think those people, these people who we could say are already pretty healthy, they're already pretty functional, they just want to continue to expand their horizons and boundaries, they really want to explore what's out there. I think this proves you know, both microdoses and higher doses are tremendous for that process. Um, but I also think, obviously, we have to pay attention to those people who are suffering, so to say. So people who have depression, who have anxiety, who have addiction, who have PTSD. Um, what we do know, more or less as a fact, is a lot of our current approaches for mental illness are failures. I mean, I just remember, I, I recently read a research paper that showed that, like, when it comes to depression, for example, placebo is effective 40% of the time for depression. Antidepressants are effective 41% of the time, meaning that there's basically no difference between an antidepressant and placebo to treat depression. This is an issue because we know, for example, from the research that's happened with psychedelics, that psychedelics are, they, you know, they, they clinically reduce symptoms of anxiety and depression in 80% of people. And that's compared to a placebo, 80% of people, which is so much more effective. And so I think that's then, you know, I think the people who could use it more right now in terms of like really need it, because I think with peak performance, there's obviously things like meditation, there's things like, uh, I don't know, name, name your thing that you want to use for peak performance. There's a lot of things out there. But I think people who are struggling with intractable issues, I think this offers a hope for them that nothing else has offered yet. Uh, and I think obviously there's a relationship there. Uh, meaning it's not just black and white, people who have mental illness and people who don't. Um, but, you know, there it, it is, I think, more prescient for those who have tried everything else and nothing has worked. And, you know, this could be, this is something that has helped a lot of people where other things haven't. That 80% figure is so key. It's, I mean, not many people know that. And, and, and the reason that they don't is because they, uh, really trust their doctor and believe the hype and there's so much money supporting uh uh supporting pharmaceuticals that that just tear people apart and tear families apart 
that 80% is, is massive. I mean, uh, it's, it's why we're talking, you know, it's, 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 it's why we're having this conversation and seeing how depression is now the number one mental illness. Uh, mental illness is a, a loaded term, but in, on the planet right now, the fact that so many people are depressed and the fact that there's a high comorbidity rate between anxiety and depression, which means that if you have depression, you're probably super anxious. And if you're anxious, you're probably depressed at some level as well. Uh, we need to we need to figure this thing out uh, globally. We need to find every alternative uh, therapy or every therapy that we can to, to help turn this thing around. And because psychedelics have such strong results, um, and because of the work you know that, that MAPS is doing to advocate for you know MDMA assisted psychotherapy and psilocybin for PSD. Like the, there's, there's such a, there's such room for, for the, for this work, for this work in microdosing to help combat depression. Um, I see it all the time as a, as a float center owner. And as a coach, I talk to people all the time that are just at wit's end. They, they, they feel they, they're stressed out. They're depressed. They're anxious. They've tried meditation. It's hard. <laughs> uh, floating is easier. Um, but you have to actually drive over to the float center and shower and lie back in a thousand pounds of salt water and shower afterward. It's a thing, you know, people want, people want a quick fix, but, um, that, uh, you know, vitamin D and exercise or krill oil and exercise, fish oil and exercise, you know, probably works better than antidepressants <laughs> and, right. and yeah. But it's not profitable. I mean, I mean, this this has been the crux of, of the main issue around both the opiate crisis and the mental health epidemic. Is we've had we built these narratives around you know for-profit companies that are pursuing this, meaning they must you know get their money back. They have investors who want that money back for all the R and D that they've done. Really, the actual key is is much simpler, and and, and it's education. I mean, that, that that really is the key to actually like empowering autonomy and in individuals to actually make significant improvements in their health, exercise sleep and diet i mean it's really it comes down to those three things and then everything else float tanks meditation microdosing um whatever else those, those i i think are, are are the cherry on top so to say where they can help even more but really i think it's it's a lot of you know just getting the basics down and and, and this is where i think microdosing also can play a role is it gets people out of ruts like you were saying, meditation, you know, getting into meditation can be, can be difficult. Starting a meditation habit can be challenging. Float tanks, you know, they're, they can be pricey for some people. It's like 60 to 80 bucks or whatever, depending. I don't, I, don't, I don't know what the price is in Seattle, but this is like New York. You know, for one time, it's 60 to 80 bucks to go. Microdosing, it's fucking cheap. It's about a dollar every time you microdose, maybe less. Uh, and it's helping people to kind of get kick-started. And, and, and I think this is the key with microdosing is to utilize it within a larger framework of transforming your life because it does help with that initiation process. It helps people to get up and going. But then once you have that energy to get up and going, where does that energy go towards? How is that energy being directed? Uh, and I think this is part of the work that you know I've been interested in is, is how does it fit within a larger self-optimization protocol? So I'm actually starting a really interesting self-optimization experiment pretty soon where I'm, you know, I've done my 23 and me uh, genetic testing so i have all the raw data from that uh and then i'm doing the ubiome which uh tests the measures your microbiome and then i bought the aura ring which measures and tracks sleep quality 
and then I'm going to do blood panels. And basically what I'm doing is I'm setting up an experiment where I'm going to get a baseline for all of them. So I'll get a baseline for my microbiome, I'll get a baseline for uh, my sleep quality, and I'll get a baseline for my blood panels. And then I'll introduce a combination of uh, CrossFit and, and ketogenic um, dieting uh, for two months to see how that affects uh, the different, you know, whatever, microbiome, blood panel, sleep quality. And then I'm going to introduce microdosing two to three times a week and measure the impact and efficacy of that. Um, because I think, you know, this is this is the big question that we're all dealing with right now is what actual impact does microdosing have beyond some of the anecdotal reports? And I think the more that personalized medicine develops, the better we'll be able to create customized psychedelic protocols for individuals based on their specific genetic history, based on where they're at right now to treat certain issues and conditions and things like that. Yeah, that sounds like an amazing it's fucking experience. fascinating. That's great. Yeah, it's, it's gonna be a lot of fun. This is the first time I've talked about it publicly, but it's like it, it really is something that obviously I've, I've kind of been doing a lot of this my whole life. Uh, but I think this will be just another level up in terms of really being able to quantify and understand, okay, what impact does microdosing have within a larger holistic health routine in sleep quality, diet, and fitness, uh, and, and measure. It begs the question, like, where do you see microdosing in the future? If you're, you know, if, if you're talking about, you know, let's just say, you know, five or 10 years from now, everybody does this. Everybody tracks these, these biomarkers, sleep, blood, stools. Uh, whatever neurofeedback or whatever uh, to to be able to say okay you're low here you're high here you may benefit from this schedule of you know uh, golden teachers at point two or point three you know four days off three day four days on three days off like do you see that as the future of of microdosing and is really sort of a quantitative and uh, almost prescriptive uh, approach. Yeah, I mean, I think that will definitely be an element of it. And I think not only for microdosing, but, but higher doses as well. So, for example, if, if someone struggles with, with PTSD um, and then they heal themselves with, you know, MDMA, we'll be able to quantify and track and measure that in terms of what MDMA dose was effective, what type of therapist did they work with, right? We'll be able to get more and more of that data to understand that relationship. Because I think ideally, that's where we want medicine to go. We want medicine to understand that if... You know, for example, if we're measuring blood panels and we know what are ideal amounts for an individual, um, then how do we facilitate some sort of process to, to, to make that happen as consistently as possible? Uh, so I definitely see that in terms of specific to psychedelics, that, that's kind of where I want to take all of this. Uh, I want to take it outside the clinical uh, setting because one of, the, one of the downsides to the clinical model that's developing is once, for example, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy becomes medicalized, which it looks like will happen in about three years. Uh, the FDA just granted breakthrough therapy status to MAPS uh, for MDMA to treat PTSD, meaning it will be a medically available treatment by 2021. Um, you know, that's only going to be accessible for people who are wealthy uh, because of the cost that, that, that it is, and it won't be covered by insurance, at least not initially. Um, so I think one of the other keys is, okay, how do we go outside the kind of centralized clinical model and uh, help people to facilitate their own healing? How do we empower enough, you know, individuals to do this at home? And I think one, you know, the key is, is, is education. And then, and then two, the key is personalized medicine. In other words, how can people make the best decision, decision possible based on who, you know, their unique profile is? Uh, and that's, that's where I want to take it. That's where I think this needs to go because... You know, for example, we know that MDMA, you know, in, in phase two trials, 
it, it, it cured PTSD in 69% of cases, which is unheard of. Uh, and, and the average person had treatment-resistant PTSD for 17 years. Uh, that was the average? Were, Wait a minute, that was, that the, was average? the average? Whoa. Treatment-resistant PTSD for 17 years, the average person who enrolled, and 69% of them were cured from their PTSD. And this was checked in a 12-month follow-up. So a year after, and still 69% were cured. Um, that number could be even higher if we had personalized medicine, because then we knew that, okay, for this individual, a little more MDMA or a little less MDMA or psilocybin instead of MDMA or DMT. And, you know, it's like, you can just go, you know, you can take this in many ways in many places. And I really would like to, to see that happen. And I think ideally then what, what you do is you open source it. You start a nonprofit that focuses on personalized medicine for psychedelics. You start collecting all this big data and then you open source it so that anyone can just plug in all their numbers online and they'll get a customized psychedelic protocol that they can utilize at home to facilitate this process. And all of a sudden you've democratized psychedelic medicine so that it's accessible and available to anyone who wants to use it. Yes. Yes. Uh, that's, that's kind of the vision. That's, that's where we'd like to go. And I think microdosing helps to facilitate that. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Oh, I'm so excited, man. Absolutely. I mean, that, that, that that changes that changes everything uh that the democratization yeah the open sourcing here are my details here's all my stuff uh well you need uh you need this protocol and this this that's yeah i'm with you there dude <laughs> uh, i want to get involved um do you know is it is it wrong who's it wrong for who is microdosing wrong for who should who should steer clear I mean, obviously, yeah. women, pregnant women and children, but beyond that, like, what else? So I think it goes without, it definitely is worth emphasizing that, like, anyone who's predisposed to psychosis or uh, personality disorders, like borderline personality or, or specific cases of bipolar, uh, it's usually best to avoid microdosing. Uh, I do want to provide a caveat to that, and that I know people who have schizophrenia have healed it with uh, psychedelics and i know people who have bipolar who treat it with microdosing but at the same time just as a general kind of catch-all risk typically people who struggle with those things should avoid psychedelics both microdosing and higher doses um you know other people who are struggling with microdosing meaning it's making their condition worse than better are people who struggle with anxiety general anxiety uh, because it's seeming to make their general anxiety worse because it's speeding things up um, it's making things go faster, and anxious people already have that problem when they're overthinking the future, uh, decompartmentalizing, and, and stressing about about things. So I think that's another thing to be aware of. It seems to be those those two people primarily are the ones who who are struggling. Uh, some other downsides, though, that I think are just good to be aware of is too much microdosing, as we were speaking about earlier, could lead to burnout. So it's good to match microdosing with um, taking care of sleep. Uh, diet, exercise, and not going too often. In other words, you know, like when you try a microdosing protocol, the idea is to microdose a couple times a week, so two times a week, um, and to do it for maybe, you know, an extended period of time. So that might be eight weeks, it might be 10 weeks, it might be 12 weeks. I did it for seven months when I did it because it was just good and I kept going. Um, but I think, you know, it's also important to take breaks because I noticed also what happened after I was microdosing for a while, and this wasn't the initial seven-month protocol, but it was further on down the line, is it did make me more impulsive and made me more likely to make decisions that maybe I wouldn't have otherwise made in a more kind of like baseline uh, mindset. 
And so well, I remember I interviewed Stephen Kotler uh, for our podcast, who's kind of this flow expert. Uh, I started the Flow Genome Project. And he said that it's good not to spend too much time in flow. Because if you spend too much time in flow, if you're always in flow, then you tend to be impulsive and make kind of manic-like decisions. And I think that can also be a challenge with microdosing. If you're microdosing too often, then I think it can induce states of mania um, and make people more impulsive than they would be otherwise. So it's always good to temper a microdosing protocol with, with breaks, basically. So if you do it for 12 weeks, take 12 weeks off. Uh, so that way you have a clear understanding of the impact that microdosing has, and you're not totally reliant on an external substance to facilitate certain states of mind or, or ways of being. What's your what's your uh, what's your favorite what's your favorite substance to microdose? So when I did it for seven months, I microdosed with LSD uh, twice a week, and LSD has always been my favorite psychedelic. But I'm starting to transition more and more away from that because it is such a commitment. It's like twelve hours. It's a long one. I've also microdosed with psilocybin mushrooms, uh, but it's really interesting. I recently started microdosing with something called four ACO DMT which I believe I mentioned earlier, which is like a, an analog of psilocybin, a psilocybin analog, meaning that chemically the structure is very similar. They've just made a couple tweaks, which has then made it much more legally available because you can make it at a lab in Canada, for example, and then order it um, in the United States. And 4-ACO-DMT is very similar to psilocybin in that it really helps with that sort of emotional opening up, the emotional development. But I've also noticed it's, I, I still maintain the sort of cognitive clarity that I really want. And so I've been microdosing with that on occasion, and that's kind of, I think, the, the new thing. I also microdosed with regular DMT. Uh, I, I, I was gifted a DMT vape pen uh, at, a, at an event that I did in Bushwick about six months ago. Uh, so basically, it was, it was DMT and a vape pen, and so I could wake up in the morning, and I could just take a hit of the DMT and then meditate. And it was really, really interesting. Uh, you basically get euphoria for about 15 to 20 minutes, a deep sense of groundedness and focus, this kind of outpouring of gratitude. Uh, and so that was also like a really interesting little experiment that I ran. So I think, I think again, this goes back to our conversation before in that ideally you're microdosing um, for a specific purpose or reason. And so I think what we'll discover as we learn more about this is if you want to be creative, you'll microdose with X. If you want to have really good sex, you'll microdose with Y. If you want to go out and go to a museum, you microdose with Z, whatever that might be. And I think it's up to the individual to like figure out then, you know, what works best for them in, in these different protocols. I'm struck by the clarity of your <laughs> reasoning and explanation of these things. I mean, it's it's so it's so well thought out, and and I wonder if if that's if that's just Paul or if that's Paul's uh, development of his own consciousness, do you, do you, how has it, how has it changed you? How has, how has these, how have these experiments um, added to your life? That's a, that's a softball question. If there ever was one, like how, what, what, have, what has it done for you? Yeah. So I think, I think the two main things and the reason why I started talking about microdosing so much is uh, a reduction in social anxiety. So I just, I was more, I'm more present with people, more engaged. I'm more interested in people. Um, I'm more, I'm, I'm, I'm naturally an introvert. So I tend to shy away from like a lot of sort of situations with a bunch of people. But when I microdose, a lot of that dissipates. And even after I stopped microdosing, I was just much more comfortable like being myself and, and, and interacting with people. So I think, 
that's been the one big takeaway. Um, I think the other thing is, yeah, the sense of creativity and like brainstorming and being able to conceptualize and visualize kind of high-end abstract ideas and then begin working towards them in a way that's productive and, and well thought out. Uh, and I think my ability to articulate this has definitely been helped through microdosing. Uh, in fact, it's why I microdose before I give public talks about microdosing, because it helps me with that articulation process. It helps me to easily go this point to this point to this point and then tie it all back together. Um, but it's also, it's, it's, it's part of what I'm oriented towards. I mean, it is, I guess, part of, you know, it's one of my strengths. It's hard now because I microdose consistently. I've been microdosing for, I mean, almost three years now. And not, I don't do it twice a week every week, but, you know, I go through phases. And it's pretty consistent. It would be hard to tie or, or, you know, break the two apart. In other words, if you ask me, who would you be without microdosing? That would be a question that I couldn't answer. Um, in large part because I've pretty much built my whole professional foundation on the topic of microdosing. Um, so it's definitely helped me in, in, in many, many ways. Uh, and again, I think it just ties back to the impact that it has on the brain. Uh, partly is that, is that we know like from a lot of psychedelic research that the mechanism of action for psychedelics is to activate something called the 5-HT2A receptor, which is one of 14 serotonin receptors in the brain. And this specific receptor is, is, is tied to adaptability, uh, which is basically the ability to learn new things at a faster pace, uh, which is also tied to like neurogenesis and neuroplasticity. So in other words, through a constant microdosing regimen, you're making yourself smarter because you're activating that 5-HT2A receptor. And of course, there's these really interesting brain imaging scans um, from Imperial College when they brain imaged, they did fMRI scans of people who are under the influence of, uh, I think, psilocybin or LSD. And it shows how all, you know, when you're under the influence, your brain is creating all these new novel connections. In other words, your two hemispheres, your left and your right hemispheres, start talking a lot more. And that process is also facilitated through microdosing, which then plays itself out in, in improvements in creativity. So it's just, it's fascinating everything that we're learning about, you know, these substances. And it's just beginning, right? I mean, this is it's just beginning. This is just, this is the, this is the, sh the beginning of the shift in the research and the attention and the experimentation and the testing of this thing. Um, you know, I, I, my mind immediately goes toward, uh, the, the people listening to this episode and, and what they, what they may stand to get from, from this and, and uh, the social anxiety aspect. And I know, you know, this as, as well as I do is the people, the populations of people that I work with, uh, that's a, that's becoming more and more common. Uh, the social anxiety for sure. It's always been there, but our, edging closer to Facebook and, and alerts and our faces glued to our phones and um, email push notifications and lack of deep conversations like this one. Um, some folks may not have a, a deeply involved conversation this year. They, they may not get into a two hour conversation on an interesting topic with someone even if it's on Skype, face to face, and, and that's a skill that we're losing, and and it's and it's showing itself through social anxiety, and it's especially rampant in the tech scene. A lot of my clients are highly, 
highly successful, highly intelligent, and that personal connection, that, that interconnectedness of all things and, and, and within people is becoming harder and harder for them to manage. And as, the, as, as they go up the ladder of, of their professional life, that they become more and more anxious with people and and it doesn't go away when you go home. It, it pervades your familial life, your romantic life. Um, I, I think for the people listening to this, just the, the impact of, or the potential impact of, of microdosing on, on social anxiety is massive. Right, and, and then there's, there's an explanatory mechanism for that, which I think is important also to understand, which is basically when you're microdosing, you're supercharging your serotonin system. So you're creating a lot more serotonin, and we know that increases in serotonin are related to extroversion. Uh, we know that increases in serotonin are related, related to being content, being more present. In fact, I was just reading the first chapter of, uh, there's this guy, Jordan Peterson, who's kind of made the rounds as of late, published a book called The 12 Rules for Life. Uh, and in the very first chapter, he talks about how you know increases in serotonin are directly tied to more confidence, to better posture, to all these things. So I think there, there's also that understanding in terms of, you know, why are you more extroverted and more confident when you're microdosing? Well, it's because you're pumping that serotonin a little bit harder. Uh, but of course, that's not the, the only thing uh, that you can use to, to improve, you know, serotonin levels. There's obviously, like we talked about before, diet, sleep, and exercise. Um, but microdosing is another thing that, that can do that because it puts you in a more present place with with other people. And like you said, because we've become so immersed in these, these like smartphones and, and computers and stuff, that's just an element that we're really missing out on. And I think it needs to be revitalized for us to live meaningful, you know, purpose-driven lives is relationship, deep relationship. Yeah. The potential, the potential there I think is, is massive. If people knew, cause we, we, we sell a, a serotonin brain food product. It's all natural and open source. You know, what's in it. Each batch, each batch is tested, and it has it has quickly climbed to like the number two bestseller of the products that we carry, because people need it. They're depleting themselves of it. They're not making enough, and uh, and it's and it's wreaking havoc on their social lives, and it's increasing uh, anxiety for them, and it's making it's making every aspect of their life more challenging. Um, so much more. We could go all day. We could go all day, Paul. Uh, we could. <laughs> we really could. Well, tell talk a little bit more about um, about the work that you do with Third Wave, uh, specifically the the team and the people that you work with, um, and and what sort of service you guys provide. Yeah. So I mean, the, the, really, the, the focal point of the Third Wave is to change the cultural conversation around psychedelics through the topic of microdosing, and you know, as we we're speaking about earlier in the conversation. Um, we really do this by, by rebranding psychedelics, by getting people to associate psychedelics with engagement, opportunity, potentially productivity or creativity, uh, this sort of thing. Uh, and it's, 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 been a, it's, it's, it's been a quick process in terms of growth, uh, quicker than, than, than I anticipated, certainly, which has led to a number of amazing opportunities. And, and one of those amazing opportunities is just the team that we've been able to build, many of whom are you know working for the love of the mission rather than any sort of uh, you know financial financially driven um, incentive because thus far it's been difficult to figure out you know what is a sustainable business plan is that for profit is that social impact is that nonprofit and then how do we go about um, facilitating that so so obviously the, the main thing that we've been offering is a microdosing course 
which is an online, you know, self-study course for people who really want to optimize their microdosing protocol because we noticed that there were a number of issues that people had when they started microdosing. One, um, you know, like, are you taking the right amount? And so this is about calibrating dose level. And a big part of having a successful microdosing protocol is taking the right amount for you. So figuring that out. Uh, two, how do you track and measure the actual changes and how do you match microdosing with other modalities, meditation, float tanks, whatever it might be, to really improve everything that's going on? And then three, a community. Because a lot of people who are getting into microdosing, again, because of the cultural stigma that exists around psychedelics, are doing it alone. They're isolated. And so we wanted to connect them with other microdosers um, who, they could, who they could be in touch with. So that's kind of then been the main thing that we've been offering then we have like some microdosing kits and, and and a few other things but the big the next big project that we're doing and I, I think i mentioned this briefly is something called synthesis which is uh in-person retreat again oriented towards these same objectives creativity personal development self-actualization um whatever it might be a, a deeper understanding of, of yourself and we're doing that legally in amsterdam with with psilocybin truffles. And that's not microdoses. Those are moderate to higher doses um, with guides in a very kind of in a professional outdoor setting. And I think that's really where this model is going more and more towards is it's offering consulting, coaching, retreats for people who want to utilize this in a way that facilitates deep transformation in a short period of time. Because, you know, as I've kind of been glossing over this entire conversation, from my perspective, psychedelics are, are, are the X factor. There's something that because they've been so culturally misunderstood, people are missing out on a significant opportunity to improve their quality of life with psychedelics. And I think the sooner people have a higher degree of psychedelic literacy, the sooner they understand the best way that they can utilize these substances, the sooner that they will live the life that they want to live uh, in a way that, you know, is, is, has meaning, has purpose, has energy, vitality, you know, all of these virtue, whatever, you know things that, that people value and they want. Uh, and so I think that's kind of still the, the overarching focus is literacy. It's, it's education and it's making sure that people, you know, rationally understand these substances so that they can make a decision um, about them that's based not in fear, but, but, but logic. Have you gotten a lot of uh, support? Did you guys sell out the synthesis uh, trip to Amsterdam? I mean, did you get a lot of, a lot of good feedback? Yeah, yeah. So we're doing it in, we're doing the first one, April 15. So we have three retreats that are each three days, April 15 through 17, 18 through 20, and 20 through 22. And we, we have, you know, all 24 participants or all 24 slots have been, have been sold out. So like that response has been, has been really, really good. And I've been, I've been just ecstatic about getting that sort of response. So basically, because it was so successful uh, in terms of attracting people, obviously we're going to do the retreat. Um, in, a, in, a, in a couple of weeks and see how that goes. But then we're offering a, a second retreat uh, at the end of July, early August, uh, getting people, starting to get people enrolled uh, for that as well. Because we think really, you know, this is, this is, this, sh this should be a pillar of psychedelic experiences going forward because we already have, you know, the therapeutic clinical model is already starting to develop, as we've talked about. There is the spiritual model, which I would tie mostly to ayahuasca retreats. And then there's the recreational model, which is obviously like taking psychedelics at festivals. But there's really no model for the betterment of well-being, for self-actualization, for creativity. And so that's really what we're developing with Synthesis is, you know, using this in a responsible, integrated setting.
to facilitate deep self-awareness and self-understanding. Uh, and I'm really excited for it. Like, really excited to see how it develops and what happens with it because it's just it's a fun project. It's a really fun project. Well, I think there's a there's a, obviously a massive value in that sort of immersive experience where you can actually go and be with other. I mean, if you if you if you can't get to Peru to to partake in in ayahuasca ceremonies or san pedro or or whatever if if that's if that's not accessible to you or if that's not that's not your game if you're not if you're not into um six hours of vomiting uh and uh ikaros that uh (laughs) turn you inside out in the most beautiful way possible um that immersive experience where you can be with other people in a controlled setting where people are uh helping facilitate these experiences i think i have no doubt that that's going to continue to gain popularity do you uh do you know are you guys um really detailed with like dosage and what's in the truffle like have you are you do you spend a lot of time making sure that that's just right so that's what i mean we're, we're really starting to develop right now is you know one issue with truffles still is nausea um so like one of the big challenges is making sure people don't pick them back up after they eat them so we're basically we're making a tea out of the truffles and then serving that so that's kind of what we have a couple team members who are in amsterdam and that's what they're working on right now in terms of then what's the ideal you know uh density or whatever of the tea that we can serve to facilitate certain processes so that, that that will be a matter of experimentation yeah in terms of figuring that out well we have a rough idea but that will be one of the the main things that we'll have to start well that we'll need to get more clarity on uh, through this first process yeah yeah there's the yeah the nausea thing there's that feeling where you're li- where it gets to your liver and you go oh 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 the liver says wait a minute we don't know what this is you've you've been you've been you've been poisoned time to kick your things kick you know, fight or flight or freeze mode. Um, and I think that for, for those of the listeners that have, that have done that before, uh, they've experienced that moment where it's like, Oh, here it goes. You know, whether you start to yawn or smile, but that, you know, you're, you get a little bit of a side ache, you know, that, <laughs> that all familiar uh, reaction. Um, you know, there's the mitigation of eating it raw, you know, you have to eat higher doses, but that eating it, eating the raw, uh, uh psilocybin uh, mitigates that, uh, that, uh, you know, uh, gut ache, but you know, I don't know. Yeah. If, I don't know if that's something that you want to get into or not, but, um, well, we could easily go two hours, three hours, four hours, but I know that, uh, that you're a busy man. You know, you just, you jump from one call into this one, but I, we we're just starting the conversation, Paul. <laughs> um, so we, we should continue. We should, we should maybe do another one. I do have to get going soon though, just cause I have yeah. to eat some lunch. Um, and then I, I have to do a podcast interview for my podcast with, you know, who Ingmar Gorman is, do you know, who Ingmar is no. probably not. He's leading the MDMA phase three trials in New York, um, okay. for, for maps. So, uh, and he's kind of like skeptical on microdosing. So we're having an interview going back and forth about microdosing. Excellent. Well, this is the yeah. perfect, perfect segue to please tell people how they can get a hold of you, how they can get in touch with you, reach out and connect, like give us all your, give us all your vitals. Yeah, absolutely. So if people want to learn more about microdosing, I would say go to the third wave. So the third wave.co, okay, co, not com, .co. And we have a bunch of education information resources there. We also have the microdosing course. If this is something that people really want to take to the next level, 
Um, and then, like I mentioned before, if anyone is interested in utilizing this in a professional retreat setting, uh, we're doing legal retreats in Amsterdam, and that is synthesisretreat.com. Synthesisretreat.com. And then I'm on Twitter at Paul Austin 3W. Um, if you want to tweet at me or, or just say hi, I'd be happy to chat with anyone who has listened to the podcast and wants to reach out and has any other questions. Awesome. I think people are going to love this content, Paul. Thank you so much for, for joining us on the OPP today. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Sean, for, for providing this platform and having me on. And it was a, it was a blast to chat with you for, for a while. For additional insights and practical lessons based on this show, go to naturalstacks.com. The Optimal Performance Podcast is a Natural Stacks original. Our executive producers are Dennis Buckley and myself, Sean McCormick. Our producer is Christian Randall. OPP intro music by Odyssey. Additional music provided by That New Jam. A Randy McCandle production.